Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7? We're going to continue studying this important book, and I'm going to read most of 1 Samuel 7. Hear now God's word. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went out against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living. It's active. It's alive and well and moving today. And we pray that it would do its hard work of dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and seeking the deep things in our heart to change us and cause us to return to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's something I haven't quite figured out about the preaching sequence. I stand up, I say, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and if you're not a pre-flipper, like you didn't start getting there during the tithes and offerings, you're not going to have time to get there because... I know that I should probably stall or tell a joke or something and let everybody get there, but I just get nervous standing up here, so I just start reading 1 Samuel 7. Well, if that happened to you, if you're a post-flipper and not a pre-flipper, and you ended up turning your pages while I was reading, you might have missed a subtle bomb that was dropped in verse 2, where the author tells us a long time passed, some 20 years Now, again and again in Samuel, our concept of time is being challenged. We don't operate in the same time frame that Samuel does, and that's being challenged. We, as a culture that likes to move quickly, are challenged by a book that slows way down. 
don't know if you guys have ever heard the Mitch Hedberg special sketch where he talks about what it's like in our culture to go to a restaurant and to wait in line. He says, you know, typically you go and you put your name in with the hostess and you sit down and you're waiting and the hostess calls out, Dufresne, party of two, Dufresne, party of two. And you're kind of sitting there waiting, looking around and nobody moves. And so the hostess says, Dufresne, party of two, Dufresne, party of two. And you look around and nobody's moving. And so the hostess says, all right, Bush, party of three, Bush, party of three. And Mitch says, hang on a second. What happened to the Dufresnes? I mean, people are missing here, and it's like nobody cares. The Dufresnes, they might be duct taped and in the back of somebody's trunk, and they're hungry, so that's a double whammy. And nobody cares. The hostess should get up and say, Bush search party of three, you can eat when you find the Dufresnes. <laughs> we in our culture, we don't have time for the Dufresnes. We're, we're moving. We like things fast-paced. We like to keep the show going. We're ready to eat. We want fast food. We want fast news. We want fast results. We wake up in the morning and we open our Bibles and say, Lord, I've got three minutes before I've got to get out the door and to work. Wow me with something. And it's no wonder that our Bibles continue to disappoint us. The currency of time spent in Samuel is not minutes, but it's decades. God's time is not our time. Things happen very slowly, and we've seen this already again and again. Right out of the gate, chapter 1, we watch Hannah carry the weight of infertility for 20 years. 20 years of shame, 20 years of hurt, 20 years of crying out before the Lord, 20 years before she has a son, Samuel. And then we learn that Eli, who is a slippery priest who indulges his sons in in injustice in the tabernacle, we learn that he judges Israel for 40 years. That means the people of Israel endured a wicked priesthood for 40 years. And now, if you blinked an eye, you missed it. But another 20 years has passed in which the ark is back in Israel territory, but it's in a Gentile city and the people of God are lamenting after the Lord. These are stark reminders that God's time is not our time. And the reason I say all that is because I left nothing to the imagination in today's sermon title. Today's sermon title, Lament, Repent, Remember, these are the three points of the sermon so that there's no mistaking where we're going with this, this thing. We're talking about, as we see in 1 Samuel 7, what this cycle of, of confessing our sins and receiving forgiveness from God looks like. But I want to remind all of us, myself included, that this takes time to learn that the best things in the Christian life, they don't take minutes, they take decades, and they take a lifetime to observe and to absorb and to learn. The Word of God is not a crutch for us. It's a crucible. It refines us and fashions us and shapes us, and we take on the disciplines in the Word of God into what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. So I want to take just a few minutes today to walk through this daily cycle of what it looks like to grieve or lament over our sin, to repent of it, and to remember what God has done. But I want all of us to remember that this is going to take us a lifetime as individuals and as a family and as a church to learn how to do well and do together. Very briefly, number one, the first step that Israel takes in this process is lament. We see that in verse 2. 
From the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is, this is the first thing that happens when we draw or return to God. We truly grieve or lament over sin. We're sad about our sin. But we need to be very careful here because Paul will remind us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that there are actually two kinds of grief over sin. There's a worldly grief and a godly grief. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Two people sin, two people get sad about their sin. One person has worldly grief and one person has godly grief. And the question is, how do you know the difference? What's the difference between those two things? Well, worldly grief becomes an end in itself. It's so tricky to spot because it's sadness over sin, so we think it comes from God, right? Why else would I be sad over my sin? But, but worldly grief, it becomes an end in itself. It doesn't end. It's a grief that abides with us. It sticks with us. It suffocates us. It resists the fact that God wants to reconcile us to himself and forgive us of our sin, and we can't accept that, and so we dwell in this grief full of regrets. I met a man this week. I don't know if he's a believer yet or not, but he told me that many years ago he had done some things to to really wound and hurt his wife, and she came after a season and forgave him of those things, But those sins haunt him daily to this day. He has never forgiven himself. He has never received God's forgiveness for what he's done. And it haunts him. And that is an eerie picture of what worldly grief is. Worldly grief doesn't die. It threatens to kill us. Because it will not receive the forgiveness of God. Now that could not be more different. That worldly grief could not be more different than the godly grief that Paul is talking about. Godly grief, we hear, is a step that produces repentance that leads to a salvation without regret. Godly grief jumpstarts the process of repentance. Godly grief leads us somewhere. It gets us out of lament and into repentance, and we see ourselves reconciled to God, and the gift we have from that kind of grief and that kind of repentance is a salvation without regret. Can you imagine walking in a kind of gospel that leaves us without regret? that our sins are cast so far as the east is from the west, that they are so far removed from us in Jesus that we live a life without regret? I can hardly even imagine that, and yet that is the power of the gospel. Well, I think we're going to see that Israel, we find them in grief and we find them in lament, but it seems to be more worldly grief than it is godly grief because it will take Israel 20 years to move from lament, the first step, to the second step, and that is true and abiding repentance. Let's look at that step. Samuel says in verse 3, he addresses the people after these 20 years, and he says, if you are returning to the Lord, that word return is carrying the same weight and connotation as repent. If you're going in that direction and you're ready to return to the Lord, and this is what he does. He essentially is saying to the people, I want to test your grief. I want to test your lament. I want to see if it's real. If you are returning to the Lord, I I think we're going to see two things in your life. And he says those in verses 3 and 4. 
put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. You see, it's repeated twice for our benefit. Samuel says, put away foreign gods and serve the one true God. And then we hear that the people really did put away foreign gods and they served the one true God so that we can see what true repentance looks like. It's a putting down and a putting on. Sincerity is the seed of action. First John says, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. Friends, repentance is not a friendly disposition towards God. It's not well-wishing towards him or what you might or could do. It's not an IOU. Repentance is a twofold action. It is putting off unrighteousness and it is putting on righteousness. It's what John the Baptist tells the Pharisees. It's fleeing evil and it's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a, it's a twofold action. It's a returning to the Lord from our sin. That's That's where true godly grief leads. We grieve over our sin, and then by God's power, we move. Now, here's something that's so striking about the story, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't surprise me because I should know my heart better than this. But the ark is returned to Israel, and Israel rejoices, and then they see dissonance between the ark in their midst and their own lives and the sin that they carry, and they lament, they grieve over their sin, but they spend 20 years grieving over sin and keeping a house full of idols. They still have the Baals and the Ashtoreth. The Baal is the male god of the Canaanites. The Ashtoreth pole is the, the female goddess of the Canaanites, the goddess of fertility. They lament for 20 years and they have those same sins present in their house. But by God's grace and by God's power, After 20 years of grief and this spirit-inspired intervention of Samuel, Israel really does put down their foreign gods and they begin to serve the one true God and that is a powerful public and a corporate response to God. Now, I want us to imagine what that scene would have been like. I want to imagine what it would have been like to be living in maybe a small town in Israel in those days. And if you had been living during that 20-year era you would have had an Ashtoreth pole because everybody had an Ashtoreth pole and that would have become a part of who you are and what you do. Ashtoreth is the goddess of fertility and it's a very sexually immoral uh, idolatry and so you would have engaged in those practices. That would have become a part of who you were. And you would have known that the Ark of God had returned to Israel and that would have grieved you because you would see the disconnect between God's glory and his Ark being back in Israel and yet I have this pole in my midst and I'm not doing anything about it. That, that would grieve you, that would bother you, but you might think to yourself, can, can a person really change? I mean, can you make a habit of a sin for so many years and actually put it down and change? It's almost like you know intuitively that if your right hand is causing you to sin, you should cut it off and throw it away from you because it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven maimed than to continue in this. But after a while, this just becomes so much a part of who you are and what you do, you can't really imagine life without it. Well, in the midst of that, in the midst of feeling that way, Samuel comes and and he's probably said this message for the last 20 years. This is probably not the first time that Samuel is saying this, but for whatever reason, when Samuel comes and he speaks this to the people of Israel, his voice rings out loud and clear and he says, return to the Lord, put away your idols and pursue the one true God. 
Man, you hear that, and that's like one of those sermons that's just pivotal in your life that you hear. It strikes you between the eyes, and you say, that's exactly what I want. But you know what? You get home, and the poll's there, and you continue to practice the same thing you've always practiced because you just don't have the courage to change. There's really no subtle way to throw away an Ashtoreth pole. An Ashtoreth pole is, is carved out of a tree trunk. It's this nude goddess of fertility, and it's put in a prominent place, and oftentimes it's put in a grove, so you have several of them together, and there's no real secret way to get rid of one of these things. If you went home and cut it down and began lugging it out of your neighborhood, people would see you doing that, and even if they were doing the same thing, we all know the hypocrisy of our neighbors' hearts, they would begin to whisper behind your back, this is a, a, a nasty, sexually immoral neighbor in our midst, and the thought of other people knowing your sin is worse, you feel, than living with the grief of continuing in that disconnect between you and the Lord. That's... That's a, a worldly grief that many of us carry, and we suffer, and it makes our hearts discontent, but we can't imagine what it would look like to come honestly before another person and say, I'm trapped, and I can't change, and I don't know what to do. Well, if you were living at that time, and you went to bed with those restless thoughts, and you woke up the next morning, and you heard hacking and sawing and huffing and puffing, and you look out of your bedroom window and across your yard and into your neighbor's yard, you saw the Smith family, doggone it, they are hacking down their Ashtoreth pole. And you watch them knock that sucker down, and you watch four of them grab that thing and begin to carry it out of the neighborhood, and you see neighbors parting their curtains and saying, oh my goodness, do you see what the Smiths are doing? They lug that before everybody outside the town, and they burn it. And more than that, in verse 5, when Samuel says, I want everybody to come to Mizpah, the Smiths are the first people to pack their bags and travel to Mizpah. And in verse 6, when Samuel says, I want to see a corporate confession from you, the Smiths are in the front row, and they say louder than anybody else, we have sinned against the Lord. You, as a neighbor, if you would have seen that, if you would have witnessed that, if you would have watched the Smiths do that, you would have seen the utter, indescribable power of the gospel. That a person, even a person who has been a believer for a long, long time, even somebody who's walked with Jesus for 10 years, 20 years, can still stand up in our midst and by the power of God and the gospel say, you know what, I confess that even now, I live with dark places in my heart. There are besetting sins that I've never wanted anybody to know about. I can stand up in front of you and say, I have sinned against the Lord, and by God's power, and with your help as my community, I want to change. Isn't that a remarkable thing whenever you see that? Isn't that a contagious thing? You never watch somebody do that and say, man, I'm so ashamed for that person. They really embarrass themselves. More often than not, all of our hearts resonate and say, I want that too. I want that kind of transparency before another person. I want to be able to lay my heart bare before a community of people because I want to change and live life differently. And before the author of the book of Samuel can pen down that the next 20 years in Israel's life looked a lot, lot, lot like the former 20 years, Israel, who had been marching to the left after the Baals and the Ashtoreths, they put them down and they turn and they follow the Lord to the right. What a remarkable thing by the power of God that they do.
I had the opportunity uh, several weeks ago to do a prayer of dedication at the Providence House. Providence House is a ministry that our church partners with. It's a halfway house. A lot of guys who are there are coming off of a drug or alcohol addiction, or they're just at a low point in their life. Providence House is a wonderful home that just kind of provides them with resources to move forward. Well, I got to go and pray to dedicate an extra building facility that they had. And when I was there, um, the director of the art center, he was, before I got up to pray, just kind of introducing some of the people who had helped with the house. And most of them were residents in the Providence homes. And so he would say, we've got so-and-so here who has been addicted to cocaine for the last 10 years, and he hung the drywall in this house. And then I want to point out so-and-so over here who's had a lifetime of alcoholism, and he did the plumbing here. And then he turned to me and he said, and now, very respectfully, uh, I'd like to invite David Gentino. He's a wonderful guy, and he's the pastor of CPC, and he's going to come pray for the house. Now, do you see what's happening there? Um, these guys are being introduced as sinners, and I'm getting introduced as a saint. And, and that's all well and good. I expect the director to speak kindly about me when I'm coming. But he very well could have said, here's cocaine, here's alcoholism, and here's David. You know, honestly, he's got a real anger problem. But he knows how to keep that kind of under wraps so that nobody sees it. But anyway, I just want him to come and, and pray for us. Th- that kind of transparent honesty about sin. Actually, I saw a psychiatrist this week, which is the first time I've ever done that, and I, I just really struggle with sleep. I can't sleep at night, and so I wanted to talk to somebody about that, and I sat with her for an hour, and I said, you know, I really think this is an anxiety. I think I struggle with anxiety. I think my mind races at night. I can't have peace. I can't sleep. I try to do everything, read my Bible and pray, and uh, I, I just think it's anxiety, and after an hour with me, the psychiatrist just kind of looked at me and said, that ain't anxiety. Frankly, that just looks like plain irritability. <laughs> So I got a new psychiatrist, and things are going great. (laughs) But I have these deep, ugly things in my heart, these issues, these sins, and I feel like the longer I spend in church, the more I understand what to hide and what to show, right? What sins that I can confess to another person that will endear me to that person and make me look humble, and what sins are best kept behind closed doors because they're just plain disgusting and ugly and gross, and nobody's going to like me more because of those. You spend time in a place like the Providence House, a halfway house where nobody really wants to be there or is desiring to be there, but they've come to a low point in their life and they have this rare opportunity as a human being to be honest with another human being and say, look, I've screwed up and this is where I am. I'm at rock bottom and I'm ready to change. That place without pretense is happening right up the road at Providence House. My question is, can that happen here in the church? Can we continue to grow as a community that is without pretense, that we can look each other in the eyes and say, you know what, brother, I'm a sinner. I'm ashamed to say the sins that I struggle with, but I do, and I want to change, and I need your help. May God give us that kind of community. Number three, we remember. Israel laments over their sin, they repent, and God brings this great decisive victory over the Philistines. And when this happens, verse 12, Samuel sets up this stone between Mizpah and Shen, and he names it Ebenezer, and he says, till now the Lord has helped us. Now it's very curious that Samuel would pick the name Ebenezer for that memorial because that name was already taken. That name was the name of a town. If you'll remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, 
When the Philistines first came to do battle, they came and camped at Aphek because they had their eyes on Shiloh where the tabernacle was and they were going to attack. And Israel understood that they needed to respond. And so they came and camped at a town two miles east called Ebenezer. And when those two armies squared off Israel, armed with the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines laid waste to the people of God, and they routed Israel, and Israel fled to their tents with a great slaughter, and they stole the Ark of the Covenant and took it back to the land of the Philistines. That means that if you were to hear the name Ebenezer back in Israel's day, back in Samuel's day, that would have been a name that conjured up failure and loss and regret, and judgment. That was a a memory you'd rather not have. That was Ichabod. That was the low point in Israel's history. It was the departure of the glory of God. But Samuel takes that same name, Ebenezer, and he redeems it. The name that had meant loss and judgment is now the name that spells the grace and the love of God. It's the Ebenezer. It's the memorial of what God has done. So if you were walking with your son and a little Israelite boy was out between Mizpah and Shen and he saw this this structure, this monument, this Ebenezer, and he turned to his dad and said, Dad, what's an Ebenezer? What, What is that thing? What does it mean? A father in Israel probably would have said, son, that's a story you need to know. It's a wonderful story. It's a sad story. There's parts in this story that I'm utterly ashamed to tell you. It's a story that begins with the glory of God and it gets muddled in my sin, but it ends with the loving kindness of a Savior. It's a story I want you to know because every time we see this memorial, we remember till now the Lord has helped us. Even in the dark places, even in the hard places, even the parts of this story that we thought that the glory of God had left us and left us for good, we take the whole of that and we stand and say today, we remember till now the Lord has helped us. Let's pray. Father, give us the courage, give us the gospel memory to say today, till now the Lord has helped us. And carry us on this path of repentance and faith so that we might say on that last day, till now the Lord has helped us. And I pray that when we have been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we will say with all the saints, till now the Lord has helped us. Will you do that in our midst? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.